Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. And we know from last week when this then is happening. The Lord Jesus has just been anointed, inaugurated into his office as Messiah. And now, immediately, the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit with whom he was anointed to equip him for his task, he goes into the wilderness to deal with his first task in his ministry as Messiah. He's led up into the wilderness by the Spirit. So this is the will of God. Jesus follows God's direction, the leading of God's Spirit. And he goes there, says the Scripture, to be, to be tempted by the devil. Now the devil, the word devil means, means liar or false accuser or slanderer or truth twister. The devil is a lying snake in the grass. But not just that. If you turn to John chapter 8, verse 44, you see that that lying has consequences. John 8, 44, the Lord Jesus speaking to the unbelieving leaders of the people of God. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see how the Lord Jesus connects the fact that the devil is a liar and that he's a murderer. Because the untruth, the twisting of the truth, brings death. We know that, don't we? Because we see what he did with our first mother, Eve. He twisted the truth of the word of God, tempted her into sin, and so brought death and destruction upon the human race. So that's who the Lord Jesus is going out into the wilderness to meet. And to be tempted by him. Now, when you read the word tempted in the scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, the same word is used for tempting or for testing. Now, when we read our English Bible, sometimes we, for instance, we read that the Lord uh, tested uh, someone. That's the same word. And the translators of the scripture, they change the word that is used depending on who is doing it and for what purpose. When the Lord tries us, when the Lord tests us, he does it in order to strengthen our faith and draw us closer to him. And so he tries, he tests Abraham to see if he will obey and sacrifice his only son. But what God does to test and to try our faith in order for it to grow and to draw us closer to him, the devil uses those exactly same things to make us turn away from God and reject him and disobey him. The devil uses the tests of God to tempt the saints to fall into and embrace sin. So this is a trial. This is a battle. And the question will be for the last Adam... Our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the question will be, 
Will he come out of this stronger in the Lord? Or will he fall into the temptations of the devil? Now this is happening in the wilderness. Where John was preaching and baptizing already was the wilderness of Judea, but it was by the river. The Lord Jesus is now led by the Spirit deeper in, further into the wilderness, away from the river, away from other people, alone in a dry and barren place. That's where the Lord Jesus will meet and engage in battle with the tempter. Now, what is, what is happening here is a rematch of the great temptation scene in the Garden of Eden, the great battle in the Garden of Genesis 3. But you'll notice that the scene is totally different here. It's the absolute opposite of Genesis chapter 3. Because Adam and Eve there in the garden, they had every support, they had every resource, they had every weapon and all ammunition at their disposal to repel the attack of the enemy. They were surrounded by God's bountiful blessings. They were clothed in glory. They had the full resources of the Spirit of God available to them. They had food and drink of the most delightful quality abundantly available to them. There was no reason whatsoever for them to be driven by their appetite to take forbidden fruit. They had everything going for them. And yet they failed. And yet they fell. And now in our text, the Lord Jesus, the, the second Adam, the last Adam, he goes back to the beginning. This is a rematch. But it is a rematch with all the odds stacked against him. He is in a dry and barren wilderness. No food, no comfort, no beauty, no human companionship to support and encourage, away from almost every sign of the presence of the God of life, all alone, stripped of every help, and in this weakened condition after 40 days of fasting, he must obey God's will to undo the disobedience of the first Adam which plunged us all into death. So that's what's happening here. The undoing of that scene in Genesis 3. And so we move on to verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the question is now, will Jesus use his divine power, because he is true man and true God, will he use his divine power for his own ends? Or will he subject his power and his desires to carrying out his office? And the tempter comes straight out of the gate and attacks him right there in his office. Right off the bat, verse 3 the tempter tries to derail Christ's mission. He tries to get him to forget his focus as Messiah, and he tries to get him to think of himself, of his needs, of his wants. 
It's got to take care of number one. That's the very essence of the sinful nature. The sinner wants to take care of number one. And so the devil appeals to Christ's very human appetites. What does it say at the end of verse 2? He was hungry. And so the evil one does what he does best. He seeks to use trials and tests as temptations to, to, to disobey God, to turn our backs on him. The devil comes at us when we're vulnerable. He loves to kick us when we're down. And so he comes and says to our Messiah, he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, the thing is, the Lord Jesus can do this. He is the creator. All things were created through him. Without him, there was nothing was created. In an instant, he can set a table for himself with the most delicious foods, which he can create ex nihilo. But what does the scripture say? We think of Philippians chapter 2, for instance. Christ laid his glories by. He humbled himself. And he must fight this battle as the last Adam. Christ does not, must not have recourse to his divine nature here. He must face this test, this temptation only in his full humanity depending on the Holy Spirit to empower him. Now, we, we know the Scripture teaches, we confess in the Catechism, that Christ had to be true man, true God. He had to be true God, so that by the power of his divine nature, he could bear in his human nature the full wrath of God's eternal punishment against sin. And that's true. God's wrath against sin is eternal, Human beings are limited, and so it is impossible for a human, as only a human, to fully pay for sin. And so definitely the Lord Jesus is able to bear the burden of God's wrath in the power of his divine nature. But the usual practice of the Lord during his suffering and his life on earth before the cross is that he faces all of his trials, all of his sufferings in his full humanity, in humble dependence on the Spirit. If we turn to Luke chapter 4, for instance. Luke chapter 4, the, the, uh, the evangelist makes it clear here. He's speaking about the same uh, situation, the same scene that we're looking at in our text. But notice how he, how he says it here in Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse uh, 14. After the temptation in the desert, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So he's doing all of this in the power of the Spirit. Which spirit? Well, look at verse 18. When he goes into the synagogue, just after this event, verse 18 of Luke 4, he reads that place in Isaiah where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So it's in the power 
of the Holy Spirit by whom he was anointed for his office and equipped for his office that the Lord Jesus is fighting this battle in the desert. I want to stress that, brothers and sisters. I once spoke to a, a woman in Quebec, and she told me, you know, when I think about the Lord Jesus on the cross, it's really not such a big deal because he's God, so he, can, he could deal with the pain. I, I really identify with Mary because she's a real human, and I can't imagine her sadness and her pain to see her son suffering like that. And that's a very wrong-headed understanding of Christ's suffering and death. The Lord Jesus faces suffering and death fully human, like you and like me in all of our humanity. And so we go back to Matthew chapter 4. The Lord Jesus answers, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, we're always tempted to make our own choices. We're tempted to carve out our own path in the world. We're tempted to take care of ourselves and decide what we think is good and right for us. We're all too often driven as sinners. We're driven by our appetites. And our appetites, our desires, our wants are not good drivers. We decide that we, we need certain things to be happy. And then we convince ourselves that these things make us feel so good. I really need this to be actualized, to, to make my dreams come true. And sometimes you hear a sinner who is in egregious sin, blatant sin against God's will. And the sinner will tell us, oh, but it just feels so, so right. It feels so, so holy. It feels so good and, and true. It's got to be good. Well, yeah, talk to Eve about that one. How did that work out for her? She looked and she saw that it was desirable, that it was attractive, that it was a good deal, that it was something that would make you wise. She went with her gut feelings. And we all know where that ended up. The words used in Genesis 3 for how she looked at that fruit are the same verbs that we find in the 10th commandment in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. She coveted, she wanted something which God had not promised her or given to her to have. And so the Lord Jesus says, you know what? That's not the way to live. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you see that he says it is written. He goes to the scripture. He goes to the word of God as his shield to turn aside the, the first thrust of the enemy's sword. He takes up the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. That is the only way to fight the devil when he comes at you. You need to know how to use your weapons. You need to know how to use the, the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. That means you need to know your Bible or you will be rendered vulnerable and defenseless in the onslaught, in the face of the enemy's onslaught. And that's why God 
gives us in the church pastors and teachers. Ephesians 4 talks about that, that these are gifts of the Holy Spirit to us, not so that they can go on and on about what their opinion is, not so that they can entertain us, not so that they can tell us interesting stories so that it's fun to go to church, but God gives us teachers and pastors so that we may know the Word, so that we may know the faith, so that we may know the truth, so that we may know the Christ as He is revealed in the Word of God, so that we may not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, so that we may not be knocked over with a feather when the devil just happens to walk by and attack us. We need to know the Word to be able to put up a fight, to be able to resist the devil so that he will flee from us. And that's why it is spiritual suicide to wish to deliberately absent yourself from public worship, from Bible study, and to be negligent in private and family devotions. If the Word of God, if drinking in the Word, if reading and studying the Word, if hearing the Word preached, if studying the Word with your family, with your wife, with your husband, with your children, and with your fellow believers, and reading and meditating on the Word daily, if this is not a thing in your life, then you're asking for it. You're asking for death. You're asking to be overcome by the hordes of hell. And you will not stand. So if you're being careless and negligent with your reading and study and meditation on the Word, then for the sake of your eternal soul, your eternal salvation, you need to repent while there still is time. Now Christ goes here to the Word. He says it is written. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And we should open there for a second. 8, 3 of Deuteronomy. The Lord's speaking about the fact that he gave them manna in the wilderness. And, and he, he fed them with manna, he says, so that you may know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then he continues, your clothing did not wear out on you, your foot did not swell these 40 years. What is God saying? What does it mean that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes to the mouth of God? God is saying, trust me. You don't need to carve out your own success. You don't need to look after yourself. I am God. I am your Father. And even when you're in the wilderness and there's no way to plant and to reap and to make flour and to make bread, I will keep my promise to you. I will sustain you. I will give you life, even if it means miraculous bread just falling from the sky. And so the Lord Jesus throws that back at the devil. He says, I don't need to start doing miracles to start using the power of my office for me to take care of me. I live by the promises of God and he will take care of me. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, devil, God provides. And human beings, they trust 
and obey. There is no other way. He says it in John chapter 4. He says, my food. You know what my food is? The disciples are saying to him, teacher, you got to eat. you got to eat. He's at the well with the woman from Samaria. And they're afraid that he's not eating. And he says, I have food to eat that you know nothing of. They're like, did somebody bring you food? And he says, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what keeps me going. That's what attracts me. That's what nourishes me. That is the driving need of my life. To do the will of God. I need it more than food, more than drink, more than comfort, more than convenience. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. That's Jesus' point here. And the question that the Holy Spirit puts before us this morning is is this. Are we living with that simple, childlike, humble faith? Uh, Or are we looking to, to sate our appetites, to provide for our comfort and convenience? Are we being driven to look after us and our needs? And are we giving God the leftovers of our time and our energy and our commitment. Brother and sister, don't get distracted by your appetites. Don't lose the plot. Focus on what God has called you to do and who God has called you to be. That's the lesson we learn as we observe our Lord Jesus successfully deflecting this first attack. And then we, we move to verse 5, and the second attack happens. The devil takes him and puts him on the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly where this is, but most likely it's on one of the walls where there's a drop to the valley below of some 500 to 600 feet. So it's pretty high. It's about 40 or 45 stories high. I don't know if you know, I don't know this building, but I looked it up on the internet, and it's in Edmonton, maybe you know it, the Marriott building in the Ice District, that's about that high. Or it's about three quarters of the height of the Stantec Tower. It's very, very high. So he's way up there. And as I was researching about fasting, especially about long fasts this week, I read that fasting can lead to dizziness And fainting. So there's the Lord Jesus in a vulnerable situation at a very, very high height. The devil tries to get maximum leverage out of the situation to bring pressure to bear on the weakest point in his opponent. He is no sportsman. He is no gentleman, the devil, when he fights. And he says to the Lord Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. And then he figures, well, Seeing that you're using the word of God, I'll use the word of God too. You see, the first temptation was a temptation to despair, to give up. You can't trust God. He's not going to take care of you. You need to go to your own resources. You need to take care of yourself. So that first temptation was despair in God's promises. And the second temptation is a temptation to have vain confidence in the promises of God, to use them in a careless way. So the devil says, okay, you want to use Scripture? I'll use Scripture too. 
Throw yourself down, for it is written. You can hear the smirk, the sarcasm which is dripping from his words here. That's what the devil does. He'll weaponize scripture against you to turn you against God. You notice that sometimes when you're speaking with people out there, some, often in social media, where the atheists are often very active, and they're either just trashing the scripture totally, or they start throwing texts in your face and saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, well what about this text? How can you, how can you explain this one away? And they start pretending to give some credence to the scriptures and use the scriptures against the children of God. This is what the devil is doing right here. He says, you can throw yourself down because the Bible says he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You see that spot in your Bible where it says and between those two quotes? The devil skipped something there. He's being very selective in his citation and his quotation. So let's go to Psalm 91, which he's quoting. The devil knows the scripture. Kind of embarrassing if the devil knows the scripture better than some believers, isn't it? He knows the scripture. He knows the Psalms. Psalm 91, verse 11. Now, see if you can figure out what he's leaving out here. What is he missing? What's he skipping? So, it's verse 11 of Psalm 91. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You see what he's skipping there? He's skipping the bit about to guard you in all your ways. Because the psalmist is talking about the messengers of God, the angels, coming to help the believers as they walk in the way of faith and obedience. That's the context. Those are the ways of the people of God. It's speaking about, look at Psalm 91 verse 1. People that dwell in the shelter of the Most High, that abide in the shadow of the Almighty, that say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It's speaking about people that live close to God and walk in His ways. It's not talking about people that run around doing all kinds of weird things and exposing themselves unnecessarily to danger and to death because that's against the will of God, isn't it? That's not what God's children do. That's the sixth commandment. We don't unnecessarily expose ourselves to danger and to death. And that's why the devil conveniently skips that little section from his quote. So the first temptation was that the son should distrust God. And now the second temptation is that the son should put false trust in God. Satan wants to set Jesus up for disappointment. He wants to take the scripture out of context and then question God when it doesn't work out the way expected. We need to be careful here. Because sometimes we read a, a blog or an article on the internet and, and there's some promise of God which is expounded and we say, wow, let's test God and put God to the test and, and, and let's see if this works. And we don't realize that what's being promised is being taken out of context and is going against what is written in other parts of the scripture. And that's what the Lord Jesus focuses on here in his reply. You see there in verse 7? 
Notice that little word again. Jesus said to him, again, it is written. Now, he's not saying, again, it is written, because I talked to to you in verse 4 about the other verse. He's responding to the twisting of Scripture by comparing Scripture with Scripture. He's saying, devil, you're telling me to jump because the Bible says that he will command his angels and they will bear you up. But I'm going to compare Scripture with Scripture to see if you're using the Scripture properly or if you're twisting it. And you know what the Bible also says? You know what the Bible again says? It also says, it says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's how the Lord Jesus deflects the second attack. He compares Scripture with Scripture. He identifies the fact that the devil's using Scripture out of context and in a way which goes against other Scriptures. And in order to be able to do this, you need to know the Bible. Because the world and the false church twist and twist and twist again the Scriptures. And they use the Scriptures against the children of God. And they can leave us looking very foolish and narrow-minded. But we ought not to get swept away by the devil ripping verses out of context and twisting the Word of God to say what God has not said. We need to know our weapon, to know how to handle it, and to know how to compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, some people say, well, you know what? Everyone has their own interpretation. How can you be sure of the right one? Look, the devil interprets it one way and Jesus interprets it the other way. How are we to know what is the proper interpretation? And it was Calvin that said, commenting on this, he says, you know what? Just because some people twist Scripture doesn't mean to say that you have to give up on Scripture. It's just like, just because sometimes some food is poisoned doesn't mean to say you stop eating food completely. What you do is you learn to discern. You learn to reject food, which is, which is past its expiry date, or which is perhaps got, will cause food poisoning. You learn to discern. You learn to eat what is healthy and what is good. And that's the same with the Scriptures, brothers and sisters. Don't fall for that lie that no one can know what the verses mean. You can compare Scripture with Scripture, and you can know what the will of God is. And so the Lord Jesus responds, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He tests us. We don't test him. Who do we think we are? Now, the sinner can't go up to God and say, well, I'm going to try and see, are you up to my standards for the kind of God that I'm willing to accept? Can you keep your word? Let's have a look, God. Are you going to pass my test? Do you have integrity? Do you keep your promises? That's, that's blasphemy. Now, the Lord Jesus is quoting again here in verse 7. He's quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. We can go there for a second uh, to Deuteronomy 6, 16. It's all in the same area that the Lord is quoting from here as he responds to the devil. And in 6, 16, he says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And to make a long story short, the people of God in the desert, a number of times, they said to God, we're not sure you can take care of us, God. We're really not sure you have the wherewithal to keep your promises, to sustain us, to give us food, and to give us drink. 
And so they tested God. Brothers and sisters, that's not what God wants us to do. You know, what the devil's asking Jesus to do here is something like this. It's saying, well, the Lord promises to watch over my coming and going. He promises to be a shade on my right hand. He promises to be my protector and to preserve my life. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to see if this is really true. I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to walk across the hen day in rush hour. And I'm going to see if it's really true what God promises. That's blasphemy. That is putting God to the test. And that is what Jesus is telling the devil ought not to be done. And so the second uh, temptation is deflected and overcome by, again, having recourse to Scripture. And then in verse 8, we see the third temptation taking place. The devil took him to a very high mount and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Now, the devil can't get into Jesus' mind. Jesus has a perfect, sinless mind. He can't have, like we have, we have temptations and And we have a fifth column within us, that that old nature which the devil can appeal to. And sometimes wicked thoughts will come into our head. And we we were horrified. And we say, Lord, please forgive me for that thought. It just popped up in my head. I have no idea where it came from. But we know where it came from. It comes from our old nature incited by the devil. But the devil can't get into Jesus' mind that way. So he's not controlling at all what is in the mind of our Savior. But God permits him in some way, we don't know how, the text doesn't explain it, permits him in some way to show all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now this is what Christ has come to claim. He is the king of kings. All belongs to him. All of the universe is his. All nations are his. All men, women, and children must bow the knee and must confess the name that he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and that he is worthy of all praise forever and ever. What the devil's offering here is a shortcut. Without the pain, without the suffering, just sign on the dotted line. The bill comes later. Buy now. No interest for six months. I will give it all to you, and it's going to be so easy. Now, how can the devil say, I will give it to you? Well, the Bible does speak of him as the prince of this world. But he's not the prince of this world by by right. He's the prince of this world by treason, by revolution, by occupation, by invasion. He is in charge, much like the Nazis were in charge of Europe in World War II. It's a stolen authority. And he's trying to use that stolen authority to say that he can give the world into the hands of Christ. He says, just fall down and worship me. Now that's the essence of sin. Not just to to rebel against God and his word, but to embrace and to serve God. Satan for what he can give us. The devil is not usually this honest. He usually tries to convince us that when we give ourselves over to our lusts and our desires, that we're autonomous and that we're in charge of our lives. And he's quite happy if we think that. That's behind every temptation. 
The devil says, you know what? Follow me, obey me, serve me, worship me, and I will give you what you lust for. But it also works the other way around. When the sinner gives himself over to his lusts and his carnal appetites, when he thinks he's getting what he wants, he doesn't realize that he is prostrating himself before the prince of darkness. Now, this is a powerful temptation. Jesus has come to be recognized as the king of the world. And this isn't the only time the devil comes with this temptation throughout Jesus' ministry. Many times people try to encourage Jesus to enter into that kingship by revolution and by force or in some other way. But Jesus, through the study of Scripture, already has a very good idea of the suffering and death that await him, of the path of humiliation and the cross that await him. The Lord Jesus has read and studied Psalm 22. He has read and studied Psalm 53, and he knows them to be autobiographical. He knows that the the way ahead of him is a way of pain, of suffering, of death. And the devil offers him a shortcut. Here is a way for the cup of wrath to pass from him. Here is a painless way for him to take his rightful place as the king of kings. It's a shortcut. But at what price? At the price of giving up his kingship and recognizing the occupying force as the legitimate authority. And so Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written. Jesus doesn't even begin negotiations. He does not enter into the merit of the question to discuss whether it might possibly work or in what circumstances it might be appropriate. The offer contravenes the word of God. And so there is no more talking, no more discussion, because God says, full stop, period. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And to regain occupied territory by recognizing the occupying tyrant as the supreme legitimate ruler is to lose the war. What Satan's trying to do here is redo his original sin, to set himself up on God's throne, to have God serve him instead of him serving God. And Jesus says, never. Get out of here. What you propose is insanity. So the devil leaves him. Verse 11, he's exhausted all avenues. He has no more ammunition. He's stymied and defeated. How? By the word of God. God says, it is written. God said, it is written. The devil can't get through that. The devil flees when we turn to the word. That's how we resist him. That's how he flees. That's what Adam and Eve should have done. They should have said, devil, God says, full stop, this is what we need to do. God says, and God doesn't speak through feelings or personal visions or dreams or private revelations. It 
is written to the law, to the testimony. And so, brother and sister, if you want to fight the devil and win, you gotta know your Bible. And so the angels come ministering to him. Jesus is exhausted, body and soul. He's at the limits of his physical and mental capacity. And many of us know how exhausting spiritual warfare can be when the enemy attacks us in our pain, our sickness, our physical weakness, our depression. And then those attacks are so, are so powerful. and We're so weak. But the Lord Jesus knows what that's like. We have a high priest who is able to understand. He understands our pain, our suffering, our struggle. He understands that sometimes it's a a superhuman effort to hold on to the Word of God when we are overwhelmed by the attacks of the world and the devil. He knows what it is to live in total dependence upon God and to look to Him for help in time of need. And so, brother and sister, look to Him. Look to Him. He did this in the power of the Spirit. And that same spirit in whose power he fought the devil here in the wilderness. That same spirit has been poured out upon the church. And he lives in our midst. And he lives in your heart. So what has Jesus just done here in our text? He has brought humanity back to the beginning. He's had a rematch of the battle of Eden. He has fought And he has won. How? By holding on to the word of God. By believing the word of God. By trusting the word. By knowing the word. By obeying the word. This is the way he will set things right. This is the way he will do his entire ministry. He will do the will of God. He's gone back to the beginning. He's undone the root cause of the fall. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the beginning. And this is the way to the end. He will obey the word of God. He will obey the will of God. That is life. And so the question for us this morning is this. Which Adam are you following? Which Adam do you identify with? The first one and the death that he brought or the last Adam and the life that he offers? You are a Christian, brother or sister. You share in Christ's anointing. The Holy Spirit calls you today to set aside your desires, your will, your appetites, your covetousness, your lusts, your self-absorption, your focus on your convenience, your comfort. And the Spirit of Christ calls you today to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow Him on the narrow way, the way of suffering, the way of giving up what you cannot keep, to gain what you cannot lose, the way which leads to the valley of the shadow of death, And ends up in eternal life. The way of suffering and shame. Which ends up in eternal glory. The Spirit calls you to that life. Can you do it? Oh yes you can. Not in your own strength. But in the power of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. So bow the knee. Confess the name. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow Him. Amen.